First Thessalonians chapter 5. This is God's holy inspired word. We're going to begin at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Dear saints, this is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power and help of your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us grace this morning as we consider what it means to commune with you and how it should produce joy in our lives. Lord, help us to to see what that means. And Lord, in doing so, let our fellowship with you, our communion with you, be rich and sweet. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I do once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our short series, uh, Encouragements While We Wait. We probably have about four or five more in this before we move on to maybe one or two more things and then jump into the book of Revelation. Last week, we considered 10 points or 10 contemplations concerning communion with God. This morning, with God's help, we shall consider two points concerning rejoicing at all times as communion with God. Let's begin with our first point. Number one, a call to communion with God. A call to communion with God. In verses 18 or 16 through 18, God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, is commanding his people to have communion with him. Uh, You know that this is not a suggestion and it's not just an invitation, but it is truly a command from God. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18 that communion with God is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. God's will are his commands and God's will and command for your life is that you would have communion with him. God's prescribed will for his creatures made in his image is that they, listen to this word now, would enjoy communion with him, our creator. Hear the wording there, language? God's will for your and my life, creatures made in his image, is that we would enjoy communion with him. I say command and joy or enjoy because oftentimes when we think of commands, we typically think of those things that are restrictive and that take away our joy. But it's not so with God. Now, think, for example, when you're driving down the 58 or the 178 or the 99, you're commanded by law to go 70 miles an hour and no more. And you and I both, probably more so me than you, we feel the the restrictions. We feel our joy is being taken away from us once our foot gets a little heavy on the pedal and we have to pull back and say, "I'm, I'm only supposed to go 70. 
We would like to go 80, some of us 100, right? But we were commanded to go 70. Even though laws are there for us, they're there for us for our good, not for our evil. It's dangerous if you go 100 miles an hour. Well, God gives us laws, his commands, not to take away from our joy, but to increase our joy, to uh, so that we might know the full sense of what joy really is. God's commands, they are restrictive, but they're not restrictive in a negative sense. Uh, they're restrictive in a positive sense. They are creating borders for our lives, not so that we can be enchained, but so that we can truly know what true freedom and liberty is. It is the will of God for our lives that we live in this manner, that we have communion with God. And consider the activities that we are commanded to do. We are commanded to rejoice. We are commanded to pray. We are commanded to give thanks. As we said last week, joy, prayer, and thanksgiving, they're not abstract. It's not as though we're joyful for nothing. It's not as though we're praying to the sky or that we do not give thanks for no reason. These are all God-centered activities. We are called to rejoice in God. We're called to pray to God, to give thanks to God. All of these activities have direct relation to God. Those who obey these commands then, they experience true communion with God. These commands constitute a call to communion with God. And notice that it is God who invites us to this communion. It is the will of God that we should rejoice. It is the will of God that we should pray. It's the will of God that we should give thanks to Him. You don't need to knock at His door. The door is open. He's inviting you in. Brothers and sisters, last week we said, the soul of man needs God just as much as the body needs food. I wonder, have you seen those statements to be true in your lives this past week? Have you known this past week just how much you need God. This past week, have you hungered for God in your soul? This past week, have you been satisfied in God? Have you been tempted to be dissatisfied in your lives? Have you hungered in things other than in God this week? Or hungered for things other than God this week? Let me ask you this. Have you given thanks this week in all things? In all things. Think of the week that you've had. Can you say, I've given thanks to God in all of the things that I have gone through this entire week? It's God's will for your life. God commands us to participate in these activities because we are in need of God. Have you prayed without ceasing this past week? Our souls need God. If we attempt to go throughout life with, without communion with God, then we will be spiritually weak. Just as the body is malnourished without food, so the soul will be weak without God. The devotional life of the Christian, listen to the, the wording now, the devotional life of the Christian is continual communion with God. The devotional life of the Christian is continual 
communion with God. It is a life that is lived out of an expression of praise before God. This is that doxological life that we discussed last week. Now, the doxological life is lived out of a right theological life, a right theological understanding, I should say. The theological, that is theology proper, and doxological, that is expressions of praise or devotional life. As one member said last week, I think perfectly, they flow in and out of one another. They are not one or the other. They flow in and out of one another. When you have a right theology, you have a right expression of praise or a right life of worship, a right devotional life. When you have a wrong theology, your devotional life, your life of doxology, it looks kind of weird. There are people who have, uh, some, like myself, who have grown up with these different traditions of what, what it means to worship God. I was saying to some of the guys this past week, that I used to think that worship was this. I would go into my room, shut off all the lights, put on my headphones and turn on Kurt, not Kurt Franklin, that's my wife, Fred Hammond, commission. And I would pace back and forth in my room and I would try to speak in this ecstatic language, thinking that if I did, then I was close to God. I would take off my headphones and then go back to normal life. And, and God was in my room. Some of you are laughing because some of you know what that life is like. What is devotional life? You've heard the word devotions before, haven't you? It's one of those words that when we hear it, we, we already, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we have a preconceived idea or notion of what devotional life is. According to our North American definition of devotional, a time of devotion is about 15, usually 15 to 20 minutes in the morning, when a person would normally read through the Psalms or read through the Proverbs or read through a daily bread, and then after that, have a time to pray. That's the devotional life. Now, let me be clear in saying that. This is not bad, nor is it wrong. But it is lacking. It is a shallow uh, understanding. It's a slight understanding, but it's, it's not deep enough of what God is calling us to. It's toes in the water, not all the way in. In comparison to what God is calling us to. Uh, we must be aware of this North American idea of devotions is really fixing God into a time slot. I have a few minutes throughout the day and I'm going to fit God into that particular part of my schedule. What's the problem with that? Well, my schedule has a lot of demands. And now the, the problem with it is that I'm fitting God into all of the other demands. God, I'll fit you in. Uh, I've got a three o'clock. I'll pencil you in. God just becomes one of those other things on our list to do that is competing with all the other things. That's a wrong idea of devotion. Let's ask this. How did the church of Thessalonica, how did they have communion with God? How did they have a devotional life with God? What was their devotional life like? Let's consider this. The Thessalonians did not have a Bible like you and I do. 
That's very important to understand. They could not pull out their copy of the Proverbs or the Psalms. They could not read through the New Testament for 20 minutes, followed by a short prayer, and that's their devotion for the day. They did not have all the resources that you and I have. And yet, they are commanded to have communion with God. They are commanded to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all things. So then what was their communion with God like if it doesn't look anything like the North American definition of what communion with God is like or devotional life is like? Well, their communion life was presumably rich. It was full. It was deep. Think about this. In terms of documents that they could read, they only had the gospel that they heard and believed. They only had the letters, which would be two. And usually the New Testament epistles would circle around through different uh, areas. But as far as Thessalonica goes, they only had the letters written to the Thessalonians that were read whenever they assembled. That was the extension or the extent of their documents. They didn't have Ambrose. Uh, they didn't have uh, Augustine. Uh, they didn't have Aquinas. And they didn't have these wonderful resources that you and I had. They had the gospel they heard. They had the one letter from Paul. And then they had their gatherings on the Lord's days. Where they heard God's word. Preached by their elders. Occasionally the Apostle Paul would come and visit them. And Paul is here. They had the Lord's Supper. They had baptism. And I said to the saints this morning when we prayed... It would do you well, dear saints, when we are having our time of confession for you to remember what the water felt like when you were baptized. Some of us were baptized. I was baptized by my father in the Kern River. I didn't die that day, praise be to God. But I remember the chill of the water. And what is it reminding me of? I'm buried with Christ. When I come to commute or to, to uh, confession, I just say to myself, I was buried with Christ. I, I was immersed in those waters. I was raised with Christ. That's a good time for you and I to remember that we are no longer who we used to be. They had that. And they had this, this blessing of being able to see people being baptized periodically. That's what they had. And then they had each other encouraging one another in the faith. Encouraging one another to, to press on in spite of persecution and in spite of trouble. And they did. Paul commends them for this. And remember this, if Paul commends the church, then God commends the church. They persevered. They saw it fit to rejoice. They saw it fit to support the church, to pray, to give thanks in all things. So much so that Paul says they became examples to believers and to those who surrounded them, non-believers. That was their life. That was the devotional life. If the devotional life for the original hearers uh, does not consist of reading a few passages of the poetics and the wisdoms in the morning, followed by a short prayer then, brothers and sisters, what is communion life for us? They had no Bible. They were often also very illiterate. Many of them couldn't even read. And yet they were able to fulfill this command of having communion with God. 
to have a devotional life. And how so? Paul tells us, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. What am I saying? I'm saying simply this. The devotional life is not isolated to 15 or 20 minutes before you start your day. And that is it. The devotional life should be one that is lived at all times before God. Every single moment. There's nothing competing with our attention to God. Which means this. We can be living our lives then. Going to work. Having our mind on God. We can be caring for our children. Doing it to the glory of God. Tending to the needs of the home. Washing dishes. Putting away clothes to the glory of God. With good attitudes even sometimes. Driving from place to place. Some of you guys do that. But with God on our minds. At leisure. Laying back. God, to you be the glory. Enduring suffering. And yet, rejoicing at all times. Praying without ceasing. Giving thanks, listen to this, in everything. Not for everything. God, thank you that this person died. No. But in it, I will give you praise. That's communion with God. It is rich communion with God. It is the Christian life. It is God being in a part of the regular rhythm of your life. When you talk, people know you belong to Christ. What you're listening to are things that are usually edifying or enjoyable. You're doing it to the glory of God. Paul said, whatever you do, eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. That's devotional life. The believer at all times must be mindful that our lives are to be in constant communion with God. Now, ask yourself this. Do I need God only 15 or 20 minutes a day? We just talked about this earlier. The, the, The soul needs God. If you don't have God, you'll die. We know that the 15 minutes, and we know this. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying there's so much more. We know that the 15 to 20 minutes is meant to uphold us when we wrestle against the wiles of the enemy. But we must not allow that time of God, that we devote to God, to be the only time that we've contemplated God. We are to rejoice always. And we'll get this in a moment, but it's actually always rejoice. Without ceasing, pray. In everything, give thanks. If it's the only time, the 15 to 20 minutes that you are in communion with God, then you are lacking in communion with God. You actually are not having the communion with God that you think you are. It's like when we are training our children to to swim. I taught my son Nazareth to swim. They often like to stay in the shallow. And you know they can swim because they can swim for three feet. Fine. The only difference is what's below them. But they know how to swim up top. So you swim out to the deep and you, come on. No, I'm afraid. It's the same thing. Just kick your feet and swing your arms. God is calling us further in. It's going to require more what? Faith. What does a little one not understand? He knows how to swim. And that the same way he was swimming in that three feet, he can swim swim in the ten feet. Just trust you know what you're doing. Or here, trust God. God will carry you through the deep end. 
joy, pray, give thanks all the live long day. And it's important for us to stir up our traditions, isn't it? Stir them up so that we don't become so accustomed to something that we've just grown up and never challenged, but have looked to God's word. What does it mean for me to live a devotional life before you? Let's go to our second point. Uh, Communion with God at all times. I said this in our previous point. In the English translation translations, they reorder the wording. Uh, the command comes first. Pray. Uh, give thanks. Or rejoice. Pray. Give thanks. But when Paul writes this, the command is not first. Uh, the, the time and when we are to do it is first. Pray at all times. Rejoice without ceasing. Give thanks. These are all backwards, if you will. Nothing's lost in the translation, but it is backwards. At all times, without ceasing, give thanks. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. I like the way the command comes first. Why and how can we do this? What are the reasons why we can and should obey this command? Well, first and foremost, because it's God's word. That should be an easy one. That should be the, you shouldn't miss that one on the quiz because God commanded it. How can I obey this? Think about this. If it's a command for you and I to obey, uh, for you and I that we must obey, that we must uh, rejoice at all times, pray at all times and give thanks at all times. Are you in sin right now? I'm not always praying. I'm not always giving thanks and I'm definitely not always rejoicing. So how can I do this? Am I in sin? Uh, We can obey this command because it's not necessarily an external command as much as it is a disposition of your heart. What does that mean, disposition of the heart? You've heard that probably before. Disposition meaning this prevailing tendency or inclination. Meaning what? It means you have the tendency to learn or to lean in a certain direction under given circumstances. Let's break this down even more. Some of you politically lean to the left. Some of you politically lean to the right. And some of you politically lean kind of middle ways. You're kind of moderate. You're in the middle. That doesn't work for you. Let's try this. If presented with the option, you might lean toward that which is salty. Oh, I thought you would identify identify with that one. Or you might lean, identify with that which is more sweet. Some of you say, I like them both. Put them both on the plate. Disposition is a prevailing tendency. It's what you do. It's what you, in your heart, lean toward. All who are true confessors of Christ have leanings. Dispositions toward doing what? Obeying the commands of God. It is your disposition, if you are a believer, your desire to lean toward the commands of God rather than lean away from the commands of God. That's how you know you're a true believer. One of the reasons is that you lean into obedience. You don't shy away from it. 
You say, is this what God has commanded? It's difficult for me. I don't understand it all, but it's what God has commanded. God will give me grace and faith and understanding, but I know it's what he commands, so I'll lean into it. The ones who say, no, not going to do it. I challenge the disposition of your heart then. You will not perfectly obey. No one will. But it should be our desire to render obedience to God. Because we have new hearts. It can be the disposition, the leaning of your heart, because you have a new heart. Since this is true, then how is it possible for us to rejoice at all times? Think about when you think of joy. You think about it. Think, close your eyes for a second. What is joy? What does it mean, joy? What does it look like? Got it? Okay. Are you doing that? Let me help you then. Because neither am I. Paul is not commanding an outward joy. Necessarily. But cultivating an inward disposition toward joy. That is, the heart is internally joyful in Christ. We are called to have a disposition of joy, where? In our hearts. Well, what does that old children's song go? I got the joy, 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 joy down in my what? Down in my heart. Uh, you may not see it outwardly, but it's there. And this is an important note. You might not always have a smile on your face. Don't think that only Christians, uh, if you are a Christian, then you must always, hi, how are you? How you doing? You don't need to be that way all the time. It's not necessary. Are you in sin if you don't? No. Are you in sin if you do? No, you're not. But don't be fooled into, how are you? How you doing? You don't need to be that way all the time. And don't, don't rag on people who do that. It's fine. We're encouraged by them, aren't we? Some people are natural smilers. They just smile all the time. And that's great. We appreciate them. And some people's faces crack when they smile because they do it so very, so rarely, right? And that's fine too. It does not mean that your heart does not lean towards joy though. We need not walk around with a smile in order for us to be joyful. We need not always be singing a song or whistling Dixie, if you will. But there is inward joy. Those are outward expressions of joy. And they're great. Not wrong. But the absence of them does not mean you don't have joy. Which means that our joy, it doesn't look the same for every single person. Imagine if every one of us, if every single Christian was identified by the, Hi, hi, hi. Well, we would be kind of robots, wouldn't we? It would just be... There's diversity in personality in the church. Some people are, are, are outgoing. Some people are more introspective. Some people are, are uh, more funny and some people are not. But we're still Christians and we still have joy. It doesn't look the same for everyone. And don't be pretentious. Uh, don't be something so that people can say, oh, I like you because you're, you're making me feel good. No. You don't have to smile in order to have joy. And if you are smiling, then that's good too. Paul says in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The command to rejoice is found all throughout God's word. 
But again, it won't look the same for every single person. We can't obey all these things at the same time. But we can have a disposition of the heart toward these things at all times. See the difference there? We may not have an outward expression all the time. But inwardly, yes, I am joyful in Christ. Are outward, outwardly joy, oh, are we outwardly, outwardly, sorry, always joyful? Are you outwardly always praying? Are you outwardly always giving thanks? No. But you and I can have a disposition toward these things in our hearts before God. Brother, why aren't you smiling? Isn't the joy of the Lord your strength? You bet it is. I affirm that I would have no joy apart from Christ. Then smile. Am I in sin if I don't? Not at all. You're smiling. Good for you. Praise God. My wife tells me I have a, a, a mean face. That naturally when you look at me, you just, you, you, you look like you're, you could be angry really, really quick. Well, thank God you can't, that's not the, the, the disposition of my heart. My heart is, I am joyful in Christ. Despite what this mug says. That's the way God has made us. And we're emotional creatures, aren't we? Think about this. Uh, we can have the capacity to experience a variety of different emotions all at the same time. Even opposite emotions all at the same time. Uh, you could be watching a movie, laugh one minute. The next very moment you're crying. What's the matter with you, right? You're, you're a, a passable creature. You change. Uh, we can be excited, joyful, and even sad. And is it a sin to be sad? No, it's a real human emotion. Christ was sad and he was not a sinner. How then can we rejoice at all times and also weep with those who weep? If we don't have these varying emotions within us, we can feel multiple things at the same time. Sadness is not a sin. As long as sadness does not eclipse and remove the joy that God has given us. Even when there is a true cause for sadness. And that they are not in competition with one another. That's important. If your sadness overclipses or uh, eclipses the joy that you have in Christ. I have no joy now. Because of something that temporally has happened. Then you didn't have Christ to begin with. I don't want anything else to do with God. Then maybe you never had God. Think of the word bittersweet. It evokes two opposite flavors. It's used for times like when a child marries, moves on into adulthood. It's bittersweet. I won't tell you the whole story, but the night that I got married to my wife was the hardest night. One of the hardest nights in my life. I didn't leave my, my, my parents' home until I was 30 years old. My dad said I can stay forever. <laughs> it was weird. Yeah? I took him at it too. Pastor Isaiah, who me and I, him are, are not only co-pastors, but we are, we are uh, thick as thieves, me and him. I remember the night of going away to honeymoon. And I went into the house and there was my, my mom and congratulating us as we came back to get our stuff. My brother was nowhere to be found. I had to go find him. 
And he was hurting because his partner in crime is leaving. It's bittersweet, though. It's sad, but it's good. Your kids, they're growing. Uh, They're going to leave the house one day. It's going to be sad, but it's going to be good. If my dad stayed around, I probably would still be in the house. (laughs) When God says that we can rejoice, that we are to rejoice, it's not to say that we can only have one emotional mode. We can only rejoice in nothing else. Put those thoughts out of your mind. God is calling us to have inward, perpetual joy. But that joy can stand with other emotions. So long as they don't remove and take away the joy to which God has called us to. How can we maintain joy in our hearts since we are passable creatures? Since I change and things happen in my life and I'm passable, I change. How can I maintain this joy? Well, remember that God is your source of joy. And nothing else. And joy in God is not abstract. It's a specific joy in God. It is communion with God. What moves us to joy? Goodness. God is good. Good things make us happy. And God is is not just good. God is goodness itself. God is not loving. God is love himself. We are good as a quality. It's something that we are at times and something that we are not at times. But God is not good as a quality. He's the measure of all goodness. He's the very essence of good. Nothing is good except by measure in comparison to God. From God, all goodness and blessings flow. If the heart communes with God, the one true and pure good then the heart has a constant source of joy at all times. Why? Because we are changeable. But God is unchangeable. We are mutable creatures, but God is immutable. We are passable creatures, but God is impassable. He will not change. He is unchangingly good all the time. Church that I came from, God is good. They would say all the time. And that pastor was, and all the time they would say, God is good. There's some things that we we shouldn't leave back there. There is no time when God is not good because he is goodness itself. There is no time when God is not loving because he is love itself. Our hearts can always cling to God and find joy in him. And therein and thereby. Have an eternal and incessant source of joy for our hearts. Our hearts may faint. The candle flame of our emotional life can flicker. But God is a constant, immutable, eternal source of joy. There are things that we love, don't we? Things that we can gaze upon that give us joy. Some of you guys have trinkets or collectibles that you will pull out from every now and then and and look at it and say, man, I love this thing. Man, I'm so glad for this. thing. I'm so glad uh, I bought this or so glad someone handed this down to me. And some some of us, it could be something not valuable to anybody else, but valuable to us. We could pull it out and say, I love this thing. Every time you pull it out, I love this thing. For some of us, it could be a sunset, a starry night, uh, snow-capped mountains. 
Dear pilgrims, the sunset will vary. The starry night may not be as clear. And the snow on the mountains will eventually melt down. Those things that we find temporary satisfaction and they will change. But God will not. He is immutable. And God makes himself close to us. He calls us to commune with him. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Nothing. The psalmist desired more. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my life. When my flesh and heart fail. When I am weak. Inwardly and outwardly, God is a constant source of strength and joy. And there's no one like him. There's no thing like him. No beautiful view, no idol, no trinket, no person, no thing could possibly give us the joy that we have in Christ. God is the supreme joy. He's our supreme blessing. And our joy is provoked by goodness. The goodness of a thing. When you go to a buffet or sometimes when you come to our fellowship meal, you may pass by a certain food and go, and then see another food and go, oh, give me some of that. Your, your, your joy is provoked by something you perceive as being good. Our joy is perceived by, it's a simple illustration, but but it works. We respond uh, positively to those things that we think are good. If Communion with God does not provoke you to joy. Yeah, God. Then perhaps we need to reevaluate the goodness of God. That there is no good apart from Him. What a, a sad state of affairs. For a Christian to take God, meditate on Him, and find Him to be lacking in our estimation. Uh, you want God? Uh, you want to come to church? Uh, I got other things that I could be doing that, that seem to be more pleasurable, that seem to be more fulfilling than God. What a sad state of affairs if our souls are not moved to joy because of the goodness that we have in God. And, and what's the day that God has promised to meet with you? To feed your soul. To give you encouragement by word and by saints. To come to his table. To remember baptism. To pray together with the saints. And all of that so very good. It's the Lord's day. And for us to say, yeah, i got other things to do though. Yeah, I could be out there making money though right now. Uh, i got a game to watch. Well, let's reevaluate what's good. Think about me. Ribs. Barbecue ribs, pork barbecue ribs. I'm going to mess all of you up right now. I know lunch is coming. Chocolate cake. A Tillamook ice cream. Vanilla, please. Move us to more joy than the one true good. Move us to more mouth-watering. Now, there's nothing wrong with food. Food is fine. We delight in it, yes. But if we find more joy... And these things than we do in God. Now, replace the tri-tip uh, ribs and, and the, 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 the cake and the ice cream with something that you say, here's something that's challenging my joy. 
my complete satisfaction and fullness in God. Here's something that, that's challenging me. We've heard this past week, uh, these, these past sermons, the food will be gone one day. You and I will hunger again. The, the, ribs, the ribs have the potential to be good, depending on who's prepared them. Ever seen mac and cheese? I love mac and cheese. Ever seen mac and cheese and you see it and think, oh, that looks good, and eat it and it doesn't look or taste as good as it looks? We can rejoice because God is not that way. He is, look at God, and He is good, and He's better than even what you perceive Him to be. We can rejoice, not just because of His perfections, but also, how can we maintain this? Because of the surety of God's Word. God is good, and His Word is true. You know the Scriptures declare that every promise in God is yes and amen. Every promise, yes and amen. And God has contracted, not with you, but with himself to redeem a people for his own glory. God has made a covenant. We know this as the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace in which he gives his own body. He gives his own blood and he's promised to be a propitiation for our sin. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8 promised that he will be merciful toward our iniquities and remember our sins no more. In Ezekiel, God promises to put his spirit inside of us that we would love his law. He would be our God and we his people. Christ has given us his righteousness, brothers and sisters. We are adopted, sanctified. We will be glorified. And what did we give to this covenant? Our, all that we gave you this covenant was our empty hands. Nothing. Outstretched arms of sinners. That's all we gave to this covenant. If God has promised, then He will not fail to keep His promises. He cannot fail. He's unchangeable. He's immutable. He's impassable. Oh, we can know at all times that we have His Spirit, that we are His people. He is our God. Uh, we can take a look at His Word and rejoice because He has promised to be merciful and remember our sins no more. And He will not fail to keep His promise. You might remember Christian in Pilgrim's Progress who every few moments he would pull out God's Word, remind himself of the goodness of God that says, I will be merciful and remember their sins no more. He would put it back in his pocket. Then he would pull it back out again. I will be merciful to them and remember their sins no more. He would put it away and pull it out again. Will God stop being merciful? No. Will God abandon His promises? No. Uh, Will He give new mercies every morning? Yes. He has promised that He will never leave you nor forsake you. In times of deepest sadness, we still have a constant source of joy because God's promises will not fail. Every day, God loves me. Every day, God is with me. God has promised that He will keep me until I go to Him or He comes to me. These are promises that won't fail. And aren't these great sources of joy? What Paul commands, comes and commands us to rejoice at all times. We don't have to ask Him, why should I? Why should I rejoice at all times? We know that God is a constant source of joy. We belong to God. He's promised that his word will not fail. He will keep his promise. 
Brothers and sisters, do you believe God when He says that He will forgive your sin? Do you believe God when He says that He will remember your sins no more? Isn't that a good thing? We need to revive our hearts and rejoice that our sins are forgiven. Praise be to God. Eating dinner. My sins are forgiven. Praise be to God. Driving to work. He has promised to remember my sin no more. Praise be to God. Laying down in bed. God, thank you for forgiving my sins. How often are our minds like, I got to do this, and I got to do that. And then I got to go pick up the kids. And I got to drop. I got to make sure I drop this off. I got to finish that, that, that application. There's so many things that can flood our minds. And yes, those things are, are important. But will they overshadow? My sins are forgiven. He will remember my sins no more. Go to bed saying that to yourself. You're not crazy for doing that. It may help you have the best sleep you've ever had. When's the last time you simply thank God for forgiving your sins and doing it intentionally? God, thank you for forgiving my sins. Maybe this would be a good day, this Lord's Day. Spend some time with yourself or your family praising God for forgiving your sins. We also, how can we maintain because maintain this joy? Because we know that God works all things together for good. He's good. His word is sure. And he works all things together for good. God's providences are all working together for the good. We've just exited a long study of the life of Joseph and through the book of Genesis. We know this to be true. One of the greatest obstacles to this command of rejoicing always is the sufferings that we experience in this life. How can we rejoice when pain exists in my life, lost exists in my life, and sin afflicts us? How can I rejoice when there is death and sin and evil that I know we know so well? We all know that we are to expect trouble, don't we? So then how can we rejoice if we could at any time expect trouble to happen? It's because we know that God is providentially working all things together for good. Joy responds to goodness. God is working all things together for good. So I will rejoice in all things. Give thanks in all things. But it takes a great deal of faith to believe that God is using these evil things this pain this difficulty it takes a great deal of faith to believe that God is using it for good and for his glory why? because the thing is evil the thing is painful the thing does hurt so what do I do with this pain and hurt And bringing it to God, they seem to be incompatible. We cannot fathom how a good God could allow something so difficult and so evil in our lives. The good end does not negate the suffering of this life. But this life tells us 
that God is using it to create something better in the end. It's hard to feel the loss or pain or experience sin and its affliction and trust that there is something good on the other side. I can't see whatever it is. I can't see it. How can there be a little girl dying in a car accident while the parent survives? A baby. And I sat with him in the NICU. I was there with my two kids. A baby who's there in the NICU. Born five months. Parents are coming to visit, coming to visit while I'm there with my daughter. Then all of a sudden parents stop coming to visit. And I asked the nurse, what happened? baby didn't make it your response to that yeah it's painful and it's okay to say yeah that hurts but faith in God says but there's something on the other side even though I cannot see it it doesn't make sense to me there's something on the other side that I know God will do for my good and for his glory I know it I be- it takes a tremendous amount of faith to say yes and amen to that. That's when faith is tested by fire. And that's when it comes out to be pure gold. Our joy often is diminished because we can only see evil and fail to see how God can bring anything good out of this. But, but do you know why you can't see any good coming out of it? You know why? Let me help you. Because you're not God. And neither am I. Remember this when the next trouble comes. I can't see. I know you can't. You're not God. That that seems like a kind of uh, harsh thing to say at this particular point. Because I'm, I'm on this side and I'm not sitting with you, counseling you. It's obviously not something that I would say to you at that moment. But remember, remember it. I cannot see. I can't understand. Because you're not God. Do you have faith in him? Yes. And he says he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. We don't know the beginning. We don't know the end. We're not omnipotent. God is. That's when you place your faith in the one who knows all. The one who is sovereign over all things. Remember, when we accuse God of evil, Remember who he is and who we are and who we're not. He is God. We're not on the same level of God. If God did not condescend to us, we would not even know ourselves. So then how can we say rejoice at all times? We can say that because only one who believes that God works all things together for good, even sin and suffering. Only that person can find true and eternal, consistent joy in God, even through difficult providences. I know this is hard, but it will not steal my joy in Christ. Do you believe that God works all things together for good, brothers and sisters? If you just look at sin and suffering by itself, they are bad, but God permits it and them And he is able by his providence to bind them and to guide them and to work them all together for good ends.
You have to believe that. If you think evil by itself without reference to God, then all you'll ever see is suffering of sin. But the believer must be awake and aware to the fact that God has decreed all things. And by his providence, he is guiding all things and decreeing all things to a good end. We saw this in the life of Joseph, didn't we? And his brothers. You meant it for evil. You did work evil, but God was working even through your evil works for good and for his glory. The greatest example of this is the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. God guides and binds the evil deeds of those sinners to bring many sons to glory. God is able to work all things together for good. And he is working all things together for good. Sin cannot produce good. But God can use sin to produce good. James calls us in closing to count it all joy. Whenever we face trials of many kind, suffering produces good in the believers. All things have a good end in God's providence. The command to rejoice at all times is not impossible. It's not silly. It's communion with God. I have communion with God. I have joy in Christ. I have joy in God's covenant. I have joy in God's providence. I have an inward joy that stands in the midst of all other joys. That's what the believer says. Do you have communion with God? If so, this will lead you to pray. This will lead you to rejoice. This will lead you to give thanks. If you do not have communion with God, then come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Escape the wrath to come for all those who turn away from the Son, Jesus Christ. Christ has lived the life that you could never live, died the death that you and I deserved, and offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sin. Turn to him and be saved and know communion with God. Brothers and sisters, it's the command of God that we commune with him. Let's pray.